Welcome back to the show, guys. I, when as soon as I saw the book, Tyranny of the Minority, I knew I had to get its two authors on the show. And who are these two authors? Two very well-established, very successful professors at Harvard's School of Government. Um, and they are today on the cycle to talk about their book, which looks at how the institution of the um, constitution that we ended up with and the institutional designs that we have here in American democracy have actually promoted the minority party so much that we're really kind of living under their tyranny. So with no further ado, let me introduce our two professors. I have Stephen Levitsky and I have Daniel Ziblatt. And he, uh, did I say that right, Daniel? Yes, that's oh, right. so perfectly correct. Yes. <laughs> So these guys have recently put out a book that as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, God, somebody wrote the book. That's great. And let me just give a little backstory to what I mean by that. As a professor for, you know, about six years, te you know, teaching a little beyond that, I used to teach intro to American government. And I'm sure my two professor friends will agree. Teaching is amazing because you learn while you teach, right? So no matter how good you are at a topic, you get in the classroom, you learn things. One of the things that I learned as an early academic was just how structural, how our structural system had evolved over 250 years to produce a very unique situation. And why is it unique? It's unique because unlike our democratic friends in, in the EU or up north in Canada, we are we have hit a stasis in American politics where we really just cannot govern. Okay. We can no longer govern because we have put up the system that we designed was designed for checks and balances and, and separation of powers. It was intentionally meant to make legislation very hard to make. Okay. But unfortunately, the last 10 years, uh, the Republican Party has kind of discovered that actually it can it can be useful to just prevent any legislation from ever getting made. And, um, you know, the the norms and the, the system that we put into place seem to be cracking. So with no further ado, I'm going to ask both of you guys, I'll, I'll have uh, Stephen go first, just explain what what do you mean when you wrote a book and you named it Tyranny of the Minority? Well, uh, first of all, Rachel, thanks for having us on. Um, we you, we created the title Tyranny of the Minority in uh, obvious dialogue with the notion of tyranny of the majority, which is more familiar, I think, to Americans. And it's commonly believed and partially true, um, not not entirely true, but that that our institutions initially were designed in an effort to combat or prevent a tyranny of the majority. And uh you know, we both Dan and I strongly believe that democracy is much more than 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 majority rule. That it's very important to establish a set of what are called counter majoritarian institutions that prevent temporary majorities from, say, violating our basic civil rights or unilaterally changing the rules of the game in democracy. So there there is a role for counter majoritarian institutions. But um, one of the arguments of the book is that the United States has some excessively counter-majoritarian institutions, most of which uh, were designed in the 18th century, which is a pre-democratic era, uh, and that other democracies elsewhere in the world over the course of the last century, century and a half, have weakened or dismantled a lot of those counter-majoritarian institutions, but we have not. And that's left us kind of as an outlier, as the most counter-majoritarian democracy on earth. 
And Daniel, if you could pick up from there and explain, you know, these, so we're the, we're, you know, we're not the first democracy on our first republic on earth, right? There's other histories, but in the modern era, as far as, as we understand it, the American democracy comes first. It's the first baby born. And, you know, not, and one of the things I always try to tell people is there's much to pick apart about the failures in the system, but it is brilliant, right? These men who are, you know, living in a, in a, in a 18th century America, 18th century tech, trying and understanding very much as they're in the process that they have to build something that will last through posterity years after years with all the change that that will entail. They did an amazing job, but when you're designing something out of nothing, there's always going to be something that you wish you did differently or maybe end up, you know, realizing you overdid. So picking up on what Stephen was saying, Daniel, other countries that follow us down the democratic path they they see those weaknesses and they decide on some key reforms. What, what would they be? Well, I I would say you know as, as Steve said you know that we, we were designed in, our constitution was designed in a pre democratic era, but it was as you exactly as you say a remarkable document and contained many features that are really to be admired. But you know one of the things that the founders struggled with, and this then gets reflected in how other countries have adapted over time. Is that they, you know, the founders were the first real uh, republic to have an elected president, and so this is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for them at the founding. You know, some thought at the time, you know, Madison wanted the Congress to select the president. Um, you know, other people thought the president should be directly elected. The point is, there was not a kind of single blueprint, a great vision that ended up with what we have today is the electoral college. In fact, it was really the result of improvisation and compromise. And the last thing that they considered at the end of the convention, they put this on the committee of unfinished parts, the things they couldn't figure out how to deal with. You sort of put like when you're writing a paper or something, you put it at the sort of at the end of the paper and think, okay, maybe we can work this out at the end. So they settled on this idea of the electoral college and uh, it never really worked as, you know, the Id original idea was, you know, some sense like these kind of wise men would get together and kind of cool the tempers of the public and select the president, but it never worked that way. From the very first election, parties intervened and it became really a partisan body. So other, demo just to take that institution, there's a lot of other institutions we could talk about. That's a really important one. Uh, other democracies then, and spe especially in Latin America, as they gained their independence, they adopted our constitution and adopted presidential systems. And a lot of countries adopted electoral colleges for selecting the presidents across Latin America. Also France, in fact, in the 20th century for a brief period had an electoral college. But that's just one institution that over the course of the 20th century, every other democracy in the world, every other presidential democracy got rid of an electoral college. And so we today are the only democracy in the world with an electoral college to select our president. And the last one before us was 1994, Argentina got rid of its electoral college. So this, this makes us a real outlier. And this is not the only one. I mean, I just mentioned one other kind of interesting kind of thing that, you know, a lot of countries had upper chambers like our Senate. Um, and many of them were highly undemocratic at the founding, like a kind of House of Lords institutions where aristocrats sat and could veto legislation. Most democracies, and, and sometimes actually our, our Senate has been called sort of nicknamed the kind of House of Lords of, of the United States because it's sort of this body of, you know, elite group of, of men and women. But over the course of the 19th and really in the 20th century, most democracies actually either got rid of their upper chambers altogether uh, because they sort of became redundant and unnecessary and were regarded as undemocratic, or in federal systems, and I think this is really more relevant for the United States, 
federal systems like Germany, uh, those uh, upper chambers became much more proportionate to population. So, the, you know, the U.S. is famous, you know, that each state gets two representatives no matter the state. Other democracies sort of have this struggle with this issues and have made given more populous states a few more seats in their upper chambers. So th th these are just two examples of where are where other democracies have improved upon themselves. We have two as well, but just in these two major domains, we have not. And we're limited, right? I mean, so you, you guys list out a, a few things that make us distinct. And, and I think that the, highlighting the Electoral College is such an important one, right? So I, I'm glad that you guys picked that one. But, you know, the Senate's problem of unequal representation, you know, and I think our our, our audience, my audience is going to be well familiar with the fact that California has 38 million people and two senators. Wyoming has 500,000 and two senators, and that has elevated the influence of rural states, which wasn't so much of a problem until we got to the modern era and we had a liberal party and a, and a conservative party that were pretty pretty ideologically deviant from each other. And those rural areas, of course, ended up dominated by that conservative block. So they have a lot of influence and a lot more weight. But there's some other things too, like uh, lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices, I know you mentioned, the fact that we don't do proportional representation, which for you know folks following along means that if a, a Green Party gets 10% of the vote, they get 10% of the seats in a chamber. Um, you know, ours is, is you win or you lose. And if you if they're a loser, you get you get a nice going away present, right? Um, but most important is this: the constitutional amendment. And as I was talking about teaching my intro to American government course, you know, I, I was doing a series on amending the Constitution. Like, you know, what does it take? What are you know, what are the popular motions to when has it happened? As I was teaching that course, I, I started to realize. You know, actually, the United States in this situation where we can't pass a budget, we're really looking at a 2023, 2024, we may not be able to fund key, you know, things like our NATO obligations and other, you know, really just, you know, maintenance type of, of government work that in that kind of scenario, we're basically paralyzed from changing our government. We, the, 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 the separation of powers and the hurdles that the founders put into the constitution to make decision-making harder, actually at today's level for a constitutional amendment seem insurmountable. So Stephen, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Let, let's talk about what does it take to change a consti or the American constitution right now? Well, first of all, it's important, I think, to, to remember that it should be hard to change the constitution. It, it should not be possible for a simple majority, uh, a simple temporary majority, uh, a single party, for example, right. to unilaterally change the political rules of the game. And this is at the heart of the, the judicial, the crisis over judicial reform in Israel. In Israel, it doesn't have a constitution, but it is simply too easy to change the rules of the game. Arguably that was also true in Hungary, uh, where the combination of the electoral system and a, and a massive landslide election allowed a single party in a single parliament to, to change the constitution and move towards autocracy. So it, it should be hard. The thing is, the U.S. has an especially difficult uh, system. In fact, among democracies, by most measures, it is the most difficult constitution in the world to reform. You need not, a, so, so some democracies have, uh, a rule that you need two thirds of a single parliament. Some democracies say you need two thirds of a bicameral legislature, two thirds of a uh, of two bodies. Some democracies say you need two thirds of two successive parliaments. Like um, 
you know, those, those are tough hurdles. The U.S. is especially hard because you need two thirds of the House, you need two thirds of the Senate, and you need three quarters of state legislatures, which um, might have seemed plausible in the 18th century when the founders were uh, didn't contemplate the existence of political parties. It was something that was at times in our history feasible because our parties were not especially polarized. They were internally very heterogeneous. And so you could cobble together these coalitions. But in a world of two highly polarized disciplined parties, the we're talking about an insurmountable obstacle. Constitutional reform right now, at least on uh, on the, the kinds of issues we're talking about, is, is, is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, case in point, probably the most uh, famous, well, actually, the most famous is prohibition. <laughs> famous fail, right? But other than that, the most famous, at least to nerds like us, definitely the most famous uh, constitutional reform occurred after the Civil War when the 14th and 15th Amendments were passed. And of course, the 14th Amendment is the Equal Protection Clause. So like most of our individual liberty jurisprudence hangs on that 14th Amendment going into modern America. But it, um, but the, but what folks don't realize or maybe don't understand is that the reason we were able to make those amendments is because we simply stripped the southern states. They you know, had not been returned into the union to make to make the you know to vote against it so so the one time we were successful in the face of a of a it was a it was a a catastrophe of the greatest scale imaginable and b it was because we actually technically did not meet those hurdles we just found a workaround so it's really important i think for folks to know that so you mentioned hungry and orban and i'm so glad that you did and and daniel i want you to talk a little bit about what happened in hungary and how orban was able to use basically democratic features to to do uh, amass the power of an authoritarian ruler yeah, it's certainly an instructive case because Hungary looked to be a very promising uh, post-communist country. I mean, it emerged out of the communist rule, uh, joined the European Union. Uh, Viktor Orban, who had kind of fashioned himself a kind of Christian Democrat in the mold of Angela Merkel, uh, had been an anti-communist during the communist era, a young student again, working against communism, came into power and really didn't look like an authoritarian but once in power, he was voted out at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. And when he came back into office uh, in the 2010s, he sort of had this, his biographers and people who write about him say, you know, he realized he never wanted to lose again. So when he came into power, he came into power because of a major corruption scandal by the socialist opposition. He came in with huge majorities, super majorities. And because of these very so two his party held two thirds of the seats in the parliament. And because of that, and the constant the uh, Hungarian constitution was was you know very simple to change, you know relatively simple. Uh, you know all you need is a two thirds majority. You know I think the founders or the the kind of constitution writers of Hungary hadn't really considered. They had sort of been fearful of fractionalization and division. They hadn't considered the possibility that a party would gain two thirds of the seats. This case, he gained two thirds of the seats. And what he did once in power, he hasn't. He's now been in power since 2010. Hasn't been voted out. He's had multiple elections where he's basically maintained his majorities. It's shrunk a little bit, but he's maintained these super majorities, which have allowed him to redraw uh, election districts, gerrymander essentially, to make sure that it was harder and harder to vote, get his party out of power. He. Uh, changed the retirement age for judges and then brought in and lowered it and then brought in a bunch of judges that were his supporters 
uh, and so essentially stack the the, elect, uh, the electoral rules, the judicial institutions. And then he also went after media institutions uh, since he's been in power. Again, you know, never really breaking laws. And that's really important to emphasize. I mean, he has, is not somebody who's like an autocrat of the traditional mole. He's somebody who's proceeded very legally, but he's sort of gone after me, opposition media, uh, you know, had prosecutors investigate corruption, tax evasion, had friends buy up uh opposition media to get more friendly media in. And so between going after media institutions, electoral institutions, judicial institutions, he's made it so it's harder and harder to vote him out of office. And then he's used a big heavy dose of populism and anti-immigrant kind of politics. And when you combine all of that, you have somebody who's in power, who's tilted the deck to such a degree that, you know, we could say it's not democratic because it's really, at, you know, on election night, when he goes to bed at night, he doesn't have to fear that he's going to be voted out of office, which is a kind of crucial test. And so, you know, people aren't being rounded up. There isn't massive election fraud, but you have a system in which the opposition basically can't win. So that's a very instructive case, uh, both to, for two points. And I'll just end with this. One, that uh, democracies, and this is a point that we made in our earlier book, How Democracies Die, as well, that you can kind of uh, smother a democracy legally. And so it's important for voters and citizens to be aware of that. And that's a kind of model, actually, for some members of the right in the United States. Uh, and number two, that there is a danger of too much majority rule. And, and in his case, that's certainly the case. And so, you know, that's also a kind of extra instructive counterpoint to, to the argument that we're making here. It is. It's such an important argument. I mean, um, one of the things that I think people, I think Americans generally, not all Americans, but at least the ones that vote, are starting to appreciate that you know, there's a discrepancy between what the preference of the mass public is nationwide and what its political system <laughs> gets constructed as, right? But really where I thought it was valuable, and, and this is where I work too, I, I'm working on the wildfire that is our democratic crisis. And you guys did a great job. And as academic, I, I, I was reading and it flashed me back to when Freedom House and other places started to, re, to de-rank our democracy, right? <laughs> After the 2010 stuff, right? The shutdowns and all that starts to degrade. And then Trump comes along and we start to see these scores go down. So I always tell people I, I'm, I'm a two-pronged person. I'm working on the wildfire that is our, our really immediate constitutional crisis issues, but I'm predominantly concerned too with what comes after, okay? So if if Stephen, if, could you talk a little bit, you know, what is what do we need to do to shore up our democracy and avoid, you know, a situation, and I think what, what Daniel was describing for folks to understand that, you know, if, 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 if things go poorly in America, it's not like you're going to wake up the day after election day in November 24 and be like, oh, I live in an authoritarian hellhole, right? It's, it's going to be very slow. And, and honestly, I think very largely invisible to your, to your average American as they go along. Um, and, and then you start to do these things that Orban and others have done to kind of consolidate and, 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 really just take away that threat of electoral loss, which is not quite authoritarianism, but it's it, it dances in that same disco ball. So talk a little bit about what you need. What do we need to do once we get through this crisis? If we make it through, what do we need to do to make sure that we get out of this crisis mode? Well, uh, this is all uncharted territory for for all of us. Um, nobody, no, certainly no uh White Americans alive know what it's like to 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 live under uh, uh, a toxic, at least in the United States. So this is this is we're we're, we're all 
operating a little bit blind. Um, I would say a couple of things. First of all, in the short term, it is very important that we build a broad coalition against um, authoritarian forces in this country. It's, it's very important, first of all, to note that authoritarian forces, let's call it MAGA, are, are, are have never represented a majority of Americans. They don't represent a majority of public opinion. They don't represent an electoral majority. Uh, they've been given a, a very unfortunate boost by our electoral institutions and and a, and a whole set of our of our institutions, and they're able to win and 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 wield a lot of power without winning national majorities, which is a problem they'll get right back to. But they're not a majority, so they can be isolated and defeated. And it's incredibly important in the short term that that we do so. And and you know, there this is a controversial statement, not not a widely agreed upon statement necessarily. But I think it is essential in upcoming elections that we build a very broad coalition um, uh, in defense of democracy in order to isolate and defeat Trumpism. So that would necessarily include conservative forces, religious leaders, business leaders, uh, Republicans who uh, and other small C conservatives who uh, who want to defend democratic institutions. And that that means that people on the right who've never backed a Democrat have to back a Democrat, but it also means that progressives have to make room at the table for conservatives, which means uh, sh at least short-term programmatic concessions that 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 they don't like very much. We have we're not really that close to that sort of broad coalition yet, and I think that puts us at risk. Um, so Trumpism needs to be defeated in the short term. In the longer term, um, we argue in the book that we need to carry out a set of reforms that make our democracy. More democratic. You mentioned that a lot of Americans feel like um, their opinions and majority opinions are not heard in our political system, and they're right. Um, whether it's gun control or abortion or voting rights or climate change legislation or the minimum wage, there are a whole set of issues where consistently a majority of Americans, sometimes a fairly large majority of Americans, see their preferences thwarted repeatedly and sometimes permanently thwarted in the in the legislature. So we need to create or reform our institutions so that we ensure that those with the most votes win and govern and those who are governing are able to pass legislation. There, there are very, very few democracies in the world where a partisan minority can repeatedly and permanently thwart a legislative majority. The filibuster, which is not constitutional, does that. Uh, that, as Daniel mentioned, there are no presidential democracies in the world other than the United States where the loser of a popular vote can actually win the presidency. So there are a set of basic reforms that would simply cre uh, bring our institutions more in line with the, the basics, basic democratic principles, meaning those who get the most votes win and are able to govern. And I think that... Um, you know, that does that doesn't I don't want to overstate this. This is not a panacea. This does not make all of our problems go away. Um, but it does result or does address a number of problems, including the radicalization of the Republican Party. If I could just add one more point. One reason why the no, normally in a democracy, when a party loses the popular vote, when a party has trouble winning majorities, it adapts. It says, OK, this is not working. Maybe we should change our leadership. Maybe we should change our program, our platform, our strategy, and broaden our appeal. This is what the Democrats did, for better or worse, in the 1980s. They lost three consecutive presidential elections, and we saw 
new Democrats and a move to the center and Clinton, et cetera. The Republican Party, despite being uh, consistently losing the popular vote at the national level over the last, uh, really throughout the 21st century, does not adapt. Um, And 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 just to interrupt real quick, you say in the book, you guys call it constitutional protectionism, right? And Mm -hmm. and you describe that as institutions that have dulled, at least for the Republican Party, their incentive to compete, right? Exactly. So if the Republicans, if we had a set of institutions that compelled parties to win national majorities, to actually, you know, get and stay over 50 percent of the vote to win, the Republicans would be under much greater pressure to build a broader, uh, build a broader base, to make a broader appeal, to to move beyond Trumpism. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think like when we look at these, you know, the list of things that you guys suggested, so it's a big list, but there's a couple of things that stand out. And for me, one of them has always been this problem of districts, right? <laughs> like, like, like where we, when we, you know, I study polarization. So my, my dissertation was on that. And I know quite a bit about like um, empirical measurements for polarization and mapping how polarization has changed uh, over time in Congress. And one of the things that becomes quite clear is that once, I mean, gerrymandering has always been a factor because legislators have always been responsible for drawing district lines and they've always sought to exploit a political advantage for one party or the other. That is true. I mean, that's what, what if you were going to look at Southern politics, is what defines that time period in the South when Blacks were, um, you know, having their political suppress, uh, uh, um, voice suppressed. But at the end of the day, you know, I think it's important for under for people to understand that we the gerrymandering stuff really changed after the after the year two thousand. And to some, to, and, and just because I'm an equal opportunity person when it comes to anti institutional you know attacks on stuff, it was Democrats that come up with this real like really hard edge gerrymandering where you're cracking districts which means you're setting you know parts of it so far apart that they, that's the 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 real majority in that district is diluted or cracking districts or uh, packing districts where you we really condense all of like one party's voters into as small a place as possible democrats did that because you know as you guys you know point out in the book we have the southern realignment uh the, the great white replacement <laughs> where um uh, where where southern conservatives leave the democratic coalition after the after the civil rights and voting rights acts in the 60s and and as the Democratic power in the South started to wane, Democratic politicians and state legislators in places like Georgia attempted to use party gerrymandering to hold on to power. I'm only that's only a long long wind up because I want folks to understand that what the Republicans do is is once we do something at all like that, they do it ten thousand times worse. And and so over time from two thousand, like we had about 40, 50 seats that were safely competitive between the two parties and in any given cycle could go one way or the other. We're down now to about 20 or 30 seats that fall into that category, roughly about 12, 13 percent of the House of of Representatives of the 435 people who are serving in that institution are electorally incentivized to get stuff done and to compromise. And it's had a, a massive impact. So, Daniel, what would for you, what would be what are you thinking we need to do to get because I mean, obviously, it's something I think that you guys feel passionate about. You wrote two books on it, and we're going to I'm going to link both of those in the pod because I want people to read How Democracies Die, as well as your new book, Tyranny of the Minority. But tell us what what after that, what do we do? Like, let's say we wake up in November, 
2024. We've held the Democrats into the White House with this broad coalition that that Dan uh, Stevens absolutely right, and that's my job to build, to build. And so we've kind of tempered the wildfire. What do we do? Yeah. So I think the the risk of you know one thing is we have to remember that it's only a temporary reprieve. That is, we've as you, as you say, you kind of put out the wildfire. But the the broader broader point is that. Another way to think about this is that we have, you know, kind of this low grade fever that's that kind of attack that kind of heightens from moment to moment. And 2020, 2024 is a moment of real crisis. And so we have to address the the underlying set of problems that have given rise to this. And so that's why Steve's suggestions to think about reforms is so key. So the first point, though, is really to remember that, you know, this may just be a temporary reprieve. It's an opportunity. It's a moment where we can begin to address these underlying problems. And if we want to uh, not feel like each national election is a national emergency so that in 2028 we don't face the same crisis all over again, we have to very quickly begin to move to implement some of these kinds of reforms and try to achieve them. So, you know, there was a little bit of movement on uh, on this after 2020 when there was a kind of effort to push voting rights reform through that got stalled out in the Senate. So one thing I would say is that, you know, immediately move to kind of push for voting rights reforms uh, at the national level, as well as state reforms, automatic voter registration at the state level, as well as national voter protections at the national level. And these things immediately will confront a problem of a filibuster. You know, this is the best case scenario, you know, if we have, you know, if there's strong majorities in favor of democratic reform, but they'll still confront kind of barriers of the filibuster. And so I would, you know, say that the kind of path forward is through weakening, diluting, or even eliminating the filibuster to allow these kinds of reforms to go through. And then once we do that, there's going to be the opportunity. First of all, more people will vote. The more people that vote, the more uh, small D democratic this is. And ultimately, this is better for everybody. The more competitive races can get. And this will then generate a movement for uh, other kind of momentum for the other kinds of reforms that we talk about uh, in the book. So I think I think that the filibuster, reforming the filibuster, uh, reforming and expanding and protecting voting rights are the first things that ought to be on the agenda. Well, that's great. And I mean, I really wanted people to understand, like we are in a pickle, but we do have the tools that we need to get ourselves out of it. We are going to try to buy some time. That's my job. And then smart folks like you guys are going to help fix it. So I'm really excited to have had you on the show today to talk about tyranny of the minority. Again, it's such an important topic. It's it's feeling so much distress in our political system right now. And I think it will really help people understand exactly how we ended up in a situation where 90% of people want to stop seeing people slaughtered by guns and we can't get any gun legislation and uh, where we go and how we fix it. Because ultimately, you know, I've been listening to a, um, a great courses. I'm a total nerd. So sometimes I spend my evenings listening to uh, professors on great courses. And the course I'm taking now is about choices and turning points in history. And I thought the Instructor made a very powerful point that I want to close on. And that was the point that at the end of the day, all of these turning points in history that have determined and brought us to this world that we're in now, they were about choices and people making hard choices and being brave in moments of great distress. So, you know, anybody who's in power has to meet this moment. The people are counting on them to do so. And your book is a great help. And thank you so much for that. And also all the other work you're doing to advance pro-democracy, the both of you. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. us on. Thanks so yeah, much. Wonderful.